Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for look at it. For all that you've done for us so far today, we ask you to bless and guide as we show us what you would have us to see from this. In your son's precious name, amen. amen. Isaiah chapter 5, as we continue the fifth chapter of Isaiah, starting at verse 18. Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men that of strength to mingle strong drink which justify the wicked for reward and take away righteousness from the righteousness takes away the righteousness of the righteous away from him therefore let us fire therefore as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff so their root shall be as the rottenness and their blossoms shall go up as dust because they have cast away the law of the lord of hosts and despised the word of the holy one of israel Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against the people, and he has stretched forth his hand against them, and has smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn from the midst of the streets. And all this, for all this his wrath is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. All right, so we're still in chapter 5, which has been a whole bunch of different pro... It started out with the, the song of the vineyard, the, how God had planted a vineyard, and and it had been torn apart, then it went into a series of woes, and we're continuing the woes in this portion right now. And it starts out in verse 18, Woe to them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. And this is kind of an interesting poetic statement, of a picture of people just drawing sin to them, you know, with cords of vanity, emptiness. And you know, if we think about sin, this is really what it is all about. We go in about it. We, we look at it. We gaze at it. Uh, and it's an amazing thing that, you know, if we really understood sin for what it was, we wouldn't even be tempted by it. But how often do we walk by sight and not by faith? We look at it and say, well, it looks like it's going to be pretty good. It looks like it might make me feel good. It used to make me feel good. Uh, Instead of taking and looking at it the way God looks at sin, that it's evil and awful and terrible, and yet so often we will look at it and say, eh, what, what, what is this little bit of sin? It's just a little, little bit. Uh, that was what uh, Lot said to the angel who was dragging him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. They go, we can't make it to the mountains before the fall. Can we just go to this little city? It's just a little one. It's just got, it's just got little sins. And, you know, we do that a lot with God. God is just a small thing. You know, it's not that big a deal. And we make these uh, beachheads in our life for Satan to come in and say, here, here's a sin I know I can get you for because you haven't, you haven't allowed this one to be crucified. And this is what he's saying. Those who just draw the sin to themselves through vanity and then with big ones as if they were a cart rope, you know, the, the rope you'd use to get your animals tied to your to your carts. Uh, and you know, this is something we have to be very careful of. And, and this is what our world is doing right now as a whole, drawing sin into itself. And so many Christians are doing the same thing. You know, just, well, it's not that big a deal. And this is a sad thing when Christians don't 
look at sin and say sin is sin like God says it's sin. And well, it's not that big deal, God. I just, I can get away with this. And we see this over and over. And then this is very interesting in verse 19 that say, let him, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. In other words, they're basically saying, let God show himself to us. And unfortunately, how many of us have maybe said these words, God, I, I just don't see what you're doing. I don't understand. You know, get your, get, get, your, get your butt in gear and show me what you're doing. And that's what this is basically saying. God, get in gear and show us what you're doing. And if you really show us, then we will acknowledge you. And God does not usually do that for us. He usually just says, have faith. Have faith. Faith, and this is what this verses, these verses are really about. Have faith. Are we walking by faith? Are we walking and saying, God, I agree with you. You call sin, sin. God, I agree that you say that all things work together for good, that you are sovereign, and that you have a plan, so I'm willing to wait. And this is a hard thing for us as human beings, to wait. Very few of us like to wait. And I probably could say none of us like to wait. Uh, and even when we think we're patient, we're really not that patient. We're just maybe more patient than other people are. And we look at the patience of God and how long he perseveres with mankind before he finally brings judgment down. And when, when he brings judgment down, we definitely deserve whatever judgment comes our way because he has been so patient and so peaceful and, and, and long-suffering with us that when he finally does bring it down, we know we deserve it if we really analyze it. But God has a plan. And so often we don't understand his plan, and that's not really a surprise. God knows more than we do by just a little bit. Even the most brilliant person in the world that's ever lived doesn't know hardly anything compared to God. So, you know, God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's accomplishing, and yet we'll, we'll say, maybe not as bluntly as this, but God, show us, you know, hurry up and show us what you're doing, God. I want to see it. I want to see what you're doing, God. God, just show me how this is going to work together for good. Just show me how this is a blessing instead of just having faith rest in him and saying, God, you are in control and I'm going to trust you. Oh, it's hard to understand that he would do this and it's hard that he would have patience with us. And yet he does. And, he, and the greatest thing for us is to really grab hold of the truth that he has a plan no matter what seems to be going on in our life. And the more we can grab hold of that, I, that knowledge and truly believe it, the easier life becomes. No matter what comes our way, whether it's martyrdom or suffering or whatever it might be, if we go, God, you've got a plan and I'm just going to trust in you, that gives us a peace that just passes understanding and we just sit back and go, God, don't know, don't know what you're doing, but I'm just going, I'm along for the ride. I'm going along for the ride. And God says, good, that's exactly what I want you to do. You're going along for the ride. Because otherwise, all we're going to do is grumble and gripe. God, I just don't understand. I don't see how this could be for good. You, you did whatever it might be. Okay? And we need to be able to just say, God, I trust you. And that's sometimes very hard to do. And I'm going to admit, it's hard to do many times. God, I just trust you. You've taken away everything I've, I own, says Job, and, and God, I trust you because you are sovereign. You have a plan. 
And when we can get to that place, life becomes easy and we will be an example to the lost world because the lost world does not understand that idea. When, bad, when they see bad things happening around them, they get all uptight because their whole world's falling apart because they have nothing to lean on. We get to lean on Jesus. We get to hide in Jesus, not just lean on him, but get to hide in him and say, okay, don't know what you're doing, but I'm just going to sit here and, and wait, it, wait the storm out. And I've shared with you, it's wonderful to be in a storm, and we all know that in a storm, as long as you're in a strong building. Okay? If you're in a, if you're in a lean-to or a tent and you're in the middle of a storm, that's not really a good place to be and you don't feel comfortable. We are in a strong building because we get to hide in God. Nothing is going to shake him, and we just need to really understand that. No matter what he allows comes our way, we're hiding in him. And so we don't have to say, God, show us. Show us what you're doing, God. I would demand that you show me what you're doing, God. And when you start doing that, God kind of just laughs. Uh, right, I'm going to show you when it's the right time, not, not because you're demanding it. And this is the words of the lost. God, just show us what you're doing. We don't see you anywhere. And God's saying, I've got a plan, and it's going to be to draw you to me. Well, verse 20, woe to them that call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, and this is a very good picture of our day. Our day and our generation is calling good evil, evil good. And, it, you know, it's kind of sad. You know, everything that's a sin that the world says is good. You know, our world says live together. It's not a problem. It's not a sin like God says. And, you know, homosexuality is not, no problem. Just go out there. And it, matter of fact, if you don't believe in it, you're, you're, you're really bad. You're a really bad person because you don't believe in, in allowing people to live together and, and homosexuality and all these other things that are going on. And God says, woe. Woe to those who will do that. To call darkness light and light darkness and... You know, and he goes through the whole line, you know, called bittersweet and sweet bitter. You know, this is something that's really hard, and it's getting harder and harder to stand up for Christ as the world becomes darker and darker and says, you know, hey, what's wrong with you Christians? <laughs> you know, don't, haven't you evolved along with us to understand that there's no problems with these things? You haven't, you haven't grown beyond those superstitions that you used, that the Bible talks about? And we get criticized all the time for this stuff if we take a stand. Now, there are many Christians who don't take a stand. They'll just say, oh, whatever, you know, you can go to hell quickly. I don't care. It's not a problem. Or, you know, I'll go along with you and whatever you say because they don't want to stand up for Christ. And whether they're Christians or not is another story altogether. That's between them and God. But this is the sad thing, the sad state of our churches as a whole in America today and the rest of the world for that matter. Very few churches will call sin, sin. And very few pastors will preach the word and say, this is what God says about it. And it's not to say we're going to sit there and criticize and judge them, but we're going to tell them, what you're doing is sin. You need Jesus Christ because sin will take you to hell. And, you know, we've got to be very careful about this because we need to name sin, we need to call it sin, but we also need to love the individual sinners. And this is something that we say in Christianity all the time. We're to love the sinner and hate the sin. And for Christians, it's hard, we, it's hard even for us to understand, but we at least understand that the sinner and the sin is not the same thing. In the world, they combine the two. Okay? If you are sinning, that is who you are. If you are a homosexual, you are a homosexual, and you cannot change, and, that's, and they just combine the two together and say you can't love one without accepting both, 
And Christians say, no, I can love the individual. I can hate the sin. Okay? And it's a, near, it's a fine walk that we have to make to say, you know, oh, you're a thief. Okay, uh, I don't agree with you. You are a sinner who steals. <laughs> and I'm going to love you as the sinner, but I'm not going to say that your, your stealing is okay. And I'm not going to combine the two and say they're one. And this is why the world, when we say as Christians to love the, the sinner and hate the sin, they don't understand because they cannot separate the two. They're the same thing to them. And this is why it is sad when we start dealing with them because they'll go, well, you guys just hate us. No, we hate what you're doing. We don't hate you. And this is something very important because the world is starting to do just this. Whatever's, whatever they want to do, they do. And they want to make sure that everybody joins in on them with their lifestyle. And you know, we're looking at all these different sexual perversions that are coming on. It started with living together outside of the bounds of matrimony. Then it's moved into homosexuality. And immediately, as soon as homosexuality was changed, we started people hearing people wanting to marry their dogs and their cats and, and children. Okay, so it's a, it's a slippery slope. And once you start diverge, diverging from God's standard, then where do you stop? You know, how do you say any of these things are wrong once you said that any part of it is okay? And once we leave God's standard, anything becomes okay because there is no standard once we leave God's standard. Because who's going to draw that line? And this is the problem that we're having right now. We're getting darker and darker in this day and more and more sin is being accepted and we're going to see some really awful things coming down the, down the pike because we're separating God's standards and saying that God doesn't matter anymore. And we, we left the standard of, of, for divorce and said, you know, the only, God says the only standard for divorce is, is adultery. And now all of a sudden, you know, you just don't like each other anymore and you claim you're incompatible. Okay, and people, and the courts go, okay, no problem. You know, you don't like each other, we don't want you to stay together. It's logical not to make you stay together. You'd never work it out, you know, in, in our mindset because you don't like each other. Well, that's not the way it's always worked out. You know, couples that stay together past that five or six year first, first hurdle get to stay together for a lot longer because they find out they like each other again. You know, you, you go past that little cycle where you don't like each other and then you like each other again. You go a little further down the road, another five, six years down the road and you, you again don't like each other again because you forgot why you got married. And, you know, and that is the biggest problem that most people have. They forget what they fell in love with because all they do is they get stuck in the problems of the day. You know, well, I really loved you. I loved your personality. I loved the way you had fun. And then you get into that day to day and find out that they're a grumpy person who doesn't, who has problems just like you. And all of a sudden you don't like them anymore. And you've got to get back to where you remember. Why? Why did you love that person? And you get back into that whole cycle. But when you call evil good and good evil, you're in for trouble. And this is where we're at in our day and age. You know, Christians are being called evil because we won't accept the lifestyle of the people committing sins. And it's going to get worse. And we need to prepare as Christians for that to get worse. The, the problems that we're going to look at, the trials, the tribulation, possibly even outright persecution, beyond just verbal persecution because the church has gone through persecution for its history. Off and on it's had times of good and times of bad, but it goes through persecution. And right now in our day and age, millions of Christians die every year 
because they're Christians. Not in America yet. Probably just around the corner for America as well, but around the world, Christians are dying in tremendous numbers because they're Christians. Mostly in Muslim world worlds, but it happens all over. And I've been listening to that a lot. I'm amazed on how bad that is. It is, it is horrendous. It is. There are more people dying every year for Christ now than in the first century. And we don't ever hear about it in our news hardly, unless it's a really big thing, like the Egyptians, Coptic Christians, that were, where hundreds of them were killed at one time. That was about the only time we see anything, but there's Christians being killed every day because of their faith. And yet the church grows in those areas. It's kind of an amazing thing, you know, that the church keeps growing because they see the faith of these people that are dying and see that they have something that they say is worth dying for. Now, fortunately, many Americans do not have a faith that they would feel is worth dying for. And believe me, I know, I talked to all kinds of Christians over that period of time at work and everything, and you know, you, you talk to them and they're not willing to make a stand hardly at all. And it's a very sad thing, but we need to prepare our hearts to make that stand. <laughs> Verse 21, woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. People with pride, you know, uh, you're wise in their own eyes. I'm the smartest person you're ever going to meet. I have all the answers. How many of us know somebody like that? Uh, you know, that's a pretty bad place to be, and they're prudent. They're, they have, they're, they're basically conceited. You know, I, I have all the answers. I can, I can make, you know, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, or whatever the newest, uh, greatest thing is nowadays. But, you know, but he says, woe to them. Why? Because they're forgetting God. And how many times do you hear worldly counsel from people? You, know, you start talking to them and they give you counsel that sounds, maybe even sounds really good, but it's not biblical. We need to make sure that when we give counsel, we give counsel that is biblical. When we listen to counsel, we listen to counsel that is biblical and not just you know, tickles the ears. You know, and this happens, a lot of times this happens in relationships. Somebody goes, well, my, my, me and my spouse are having these problems, and you list these horrendous problems, and the very first thing that comes out of most people's mouths is, you, at, at best, you need to get separated. Or at, or at worst, you might as well divorce that person. You're, you, don't, you don't deserve to be treated like that. And if you remember the movie Fireproof, there's that montage where he's getting godly counsel and she's getting oh, yeah. ungodly counsel, and you hear these words all the time. Exact whatever, whatever he's hearing from his friend, Christian friend is exactly the opposite of what her friends are taking. Well, you shouldn't live with him. I wouldn't put up with that kind of treatment. You know? And there may be times when, yes, you, do, you, you separate, but your separation is to come back together and get counseling and, and learn to live together. But yet, so often, our counseling that we get is ungodly counsel. You know, well, you, I wouldn't put up with that. I, I would have no patience with that. I would rip their head off. Okay, God says to be patient and loving, and you're telling me, you know, and yes, that's exactly what you feel like in most cases. You know, if somebody's hurt you bad enough, you really want to seek revenge and, and cause problems. And yet God says, I want you to be patient. Vengeance is mine. You know, where is our counsel? Is it godly counsel? Is, or is it worldly counsel? And worldly counsel is sounds so good to our ears because it's just what our flesh wants to do anyway. And it's, you know, we need to really have our flesh crucified and our spirit really intact to understand that, that we want to follow God's counsel. 
Because God's counsel is something like all things work together while you're in the middle of all these bad th- seemingly bad things. I've got a plan for you. And the world is saying, God, I want to fight this. Get, get me out of all this problem. And God's saying, I've got a plan. Just, just relax. Hide in me. Godly wisdom. Godly understanding. Godly counsel. When somebody dies that is close to us, God says, precious in my sight is the death of my saints. And what do we do as humans? We're going to be very sad and maybe even complain. God, you took this person away from me. Uh, I had a Christian song that says, don't take away my everything, talking about don't lose his wife. And I hate the song because of that, how unbiblical the song is. I understand the feeling behind it. But for a Christian song, it's a terrible song. Okay. But, you know, how are we looking at things? Do we go, God, what is it you want me to do? Or do we listen to the flesh and the, and the world's way of thinking? And I, believe me, I understand. The flesh's way sounds great. You know, it sounds good. And unfortunately, that's the counsel we get so often. And we listen to it. And we need to be very careful. And this is why it's very critical. Who do you listen to for counsel? Are they godly people or are they worldly people? If they're worldly people, you shouldn't be listening to them because they are not going to give you good counsel. Even a godly person might slip. Make sure that they're biblical. Some of, some of the questions I will ask a lot of time is, where do you find that counsel in the Bible? And I've done that to people. I'm going, well, that, you know, that doesn't sound like it's very biblical. Where in the Bible do you find that? And they'll get frustrated with me. Well, it's not, not in, I don't know where it's at. I go, well, I believe it's not there, period, because that's not God's heart. But, you know, we need to be more challenging of our people that we're listening to for counsel. If it doesn't sound right, ask them. Where, where do you get that from? The, where is that in the Bible? Why should I do that that way? Because we need to make sure that our counsel is good and that we're not listening to worldly wisdom. And we've all been there. We've all probably guilty of giving worldly wisdom. I know I have. Where we give what the world would say and not what God says. And then we watch somebody ruin their life because they followed our advice, which is even worse. Uh, it's bad enough giving it is really bad when they follow it and, and end up in some pit because they followed bad advice. Be very careful when you give, give uh, counsel. Make sure that it is biblical. Verse 22, Woe to them that are mighty to drink and men that of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. In other words, those who go out partying. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. You know, somebody who is mighty or heroic and in, in, to drink wine, they can, they can sit there and drink wine all night you know, and, and make it look good. They don't, they don't seem to get all that drunk, which just means they've drunk so much wine that they've become immune to it, which is an even bigger problem because they're probably a drunk 24-7 at this point if they can drink with no problems. And then to those that the men of strength that mingle strong drink. Okay, and it starts with wine, which is bad enough, and then it talks about strong drinks, which is mingling the wine with uh, fermented, heavily fermented alcohol. And their fermented alcohol was nothing compared to ours in our day. Okay, we, we really uh, ferment our alcohol and make it very strong. In their day, 10, 20% alcohol was a really strong drink. And that's nothing by our standards. And, you know, so we even are worse than this. Be careful, those. I mean, it's not saying there's, there's not, it's not saying here that drinking is wrong. It's just saying don't drink it to excess. Don't drink it so much that you can show how much you can drink. 
and don't mingle, mingle the, drink, the drinks. And this is something that is so true for us. You know, uh, I've never had uh, a drinking problem I, because I never wanted it. I watched my dad before he got saved. He was an alcoholic. Can't say that I've never tasted it because my dad, as all, most all alcoholics do, will give their kids drinks you know, from, their, from their cups. Here, kid, have a drink. You know, and, it's, and, I, and I've tasted probably it, probably it all you know, before I was 10 years old because that's what happens. And I know what happens. It's part of how, they get, how the kids become alcoholics. They get used to, the, used to the flavors. But you know, here it's saying, be careful. Don't try to show off as you're drinking. And people who are around know that those, those kind of games go on all night when they're drinking in parties. Let's see who can drink the most, who can stand, stand the longest. Uh, you know, all kinds of different games, and I'm not familiar with them all other than what I see on TV and everything. You know, all kinds of different drinking games that they have to see who can drink the most, who can drink the longest, who can stay sober the longest, you know, and before they finally fall flat on their face. Uh, and this is what this is con you know, condemning. Why? Because in verse 23, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteousness from him. Alcohol rewards evil, apparently, <laughs> at least short term, and takes away righteousness from people. And this is something that you see. People may be a fairly good person, and they start getting drunk, and everything goes wrong. And they'll do dumb things. They'll, they'll do things that they regret if they can remember. And they'll really feel bad when people help them remember what they did. Uh, and it justifies the wrong. You know, and we hear songs and stuff all about this. You know, get, go out, get drunk, and, and find somebody to go home with. And who knows what will happen when you go home with that person, what you, what you may be getting yourself into, if you even make it home. But these are the things that are glorified by the world. You know, and, and God is saying, whoa. Woe to those that are using this as, a, as something to be glorified in and making praise in. Verse 24, Therefore doth the fire devour the stubble, and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their, and, and their blossoms shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. What a picture. It pictures the idea of how a fire grabs hold of stubble and, and chaff. And anybody who's ever built a fire, you know you started out, you put your little uh, easily burned stuff in the, in the center, and you put the sticks, the small sticks around, you put bigger and bigger sticks around, and that's exactly what he's talking about. The fire of sin gets hold of this rottenness and the stubble that we lay around. And it's a terrible thing to happen, and you know how fast a fire can start if it's given enough small stuff. Gets a nice hot thing and then it starts getting the, the larger logs on. And this is what he says about our life. Our life is full of all this garbage and basically the, the fires of hell come and light it. And we provided it with fuel. You know, all these little things that weren't that big a deal, we provide with fire and the next thing we know, who knows where we're at with sin. And I, I've heard the testimony so many times and even for myself, I started on this little, little, little sin, and the next thing I know, I'm, how did I end up at this place? <laughs> you know, God, I, I just, I was just listening to this music or reading this book, and how did I end up here? And this is the way the world is, and we all laugh because we know exactly what it's like to be there. 
We make this little bit of ignoring God's law, and the next thing we know, we find ourselves, you know, 30 miles from God saying, how did I get here? Made a wrong turn someplace and then hit the accelerator. You know, I was looking for the U-turn, God. I hit the accelerator, waiting for a place to turn around. Yeah, yeah and God says, I, I'll help you turn around. Just give up. <laughs> give up to me. And this is what he's saying, you know, that it burns. And how does it do? We, for, we cast away the law of, of God and despise his word. And what happens when we get into sin? We stop, usually stop reading our Bible. And the more we stop reading our Bible, the deeper into sin we go. And God's saying, I've got my word for you. Uh, get back into the word and let me give you a little bit of conviction so you might decide to do that U-turn that you're headed away from as fast as possible from. And it all starts with despising God's word and his law. God, I don't need to be married to this person to live together. The world is accepting of it. Why can't you? Got to try it out before and make sure it works before I, before I get married because it might be the wrong person. Or, God, you know, I lose a lot of money. I want to make sure this is going to work so that I don't lose my money when I, when I get married. And God's saying, don't despise my law. It's a downward, slippery slope. When you start getting rid of God's law, you get, it gets steeper and steeper. And if you've ever tried to go up or even, or especially down, <laughs> But even up a very slippery, steep slope, it's a tough, tough climb. A lot of times you end up going back down faster than you went up. Uh, and that's what happens when we despise his law. We end up trying to climb with worldly wisdom, and we end up getting further and further backwards. And God's saying, don't despise my law. Don't despise my word. The greatest advice we can tell anybody who's having a hard time is get into, the, get into the Bible. Start reading his word. And if you really don't feel comfortable reading his word, get into a Bible study where you can hear God's word preached and taught. Uh, but get into his word. Start really hearing his word and, and saying, God, I want to turn to you. I don't want to despise your word, God. I want to love it. And that's what David says in Psalm 19, that you know, your law is like honey. And it, and it is a bright light to my life. And, you know, honey is so sweet, and God's word is so sweet when you're, when you're really following him. And I love his word. And, you know, it's easy to not make time for God. It really is. You get so busy, you wake up a little late, and it's time to go to work. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you have to read the newspaper more important than God's word or whatever it might be. And God's saying, don't despise my word. Give, put it in its full place. And God's reaction when all of this happens is in verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord kindles against his people and he stretches forth his hand against them and he smites them and the hills do tremble and their carcasses are torn in the midst of the street. For all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. And this is literally talking about God's people. When Christians, God's people turn away from him he brings judgment upon us. And this, when you look at this, this is pretty strict, you know, punishment. He sends fire. He says the carcasses are torn in the streets. They're not even buried. And if you've ever been there, you know what that's like. It feels like everything's going against you. You read the Bible and it's like he's sticking spears into you. You go to a Bible study or listen to something on the radio and God, will you ever stop and just let me go? And he goes, not until you're ready to stop and turn to him. 
uh, it's hard enough when you're walking with him to be convicted by the word. But when you're not walking with him, which is why most people stop reading the Bible when they're not walking close to him, because they don't want the conviction. They don't want to see what they're doing is wrong. And, Jesus, and God says, hey, if you don't, if you don't I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And this is, can be harsh judgment. And if you've ever been there, you know what it's like to be under judgment and have everything seeming to go wrong because you're not following God. Been there. Know what it's like. And I'm sure everybody else has as well at some point in their life. You just don't have peace. You don't have comfort. You just have no desire to seek God. And God does not give you peace, especially if you're his child. If you're not his child, he'll still make it difficult for you. But when you're his child, he'll make things really difficult for you because you're supposed to be his child and you're supposed to follow him. Verse 26. And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar and will hiss at them from the ends of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary nor stumble among them. None shall slumber or sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. Whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves shall be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion and they shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey and shall carry it away safe and none shall deliver it. And in that day shall they roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the sea, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. All right, this is more of God's judgment. <laughs> and it says, and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar. And an ensign is, that, is a flag of, of sorts. It's, uh, it usually will identify a unit or a, or a company. Uh, so it's an ensign. We sing the song every once in a while of his uh, loves a flag flown high over the castle of my heart, and that would be referring to an ensign more than a flag. Uh, uh, generals and, and admirals would have an ensign that they would fly that would say, this is my, my, my identification mark. And we see this over and over. The president has an ensign that flies on the corner of his car that says, this is the president's car. All right, And it says, he will lift up an ensign to the nations from afar. So he's lifting up something, and basically this one is inviting them to come and judge. And will hiss unto them from the ends of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. And that hiss is that idea of making fun of. Okay? God is making fun of his people and saying, come on, come on over here, you know, world, come and judge them. Yeah, that's kind of it. You know, uh, pay attention. And it's got a little more negative to it, but it is that kind of an idea. You know, hey, yeah, come on over here, right here. Come and get them. And when we disobey God, he opens the door. We, we see through the book of Judges, God opening the door. Every time the people started doing what was right in their own eyes and doing evil, he'd let them go into captivity and put them in subjection to, to, a, to a foreign nation. When the kings would get really bad, he'd let somebody give them, not, he didn't put them into captivity, but he'd let them be put under domination and become vassals where they had to pay taxes. And that meant have a hard time. God does that with his children. You want to disobey God? He says, okay, you, want, you, you don't want me to rule over you? Let me put you under the world's rule. You know, let me put you under the, the rule of some sin and some evil. Let's see how you like that. And when you get there, you usually will feel miserable. If you are his child, you'll feel miserable because you feel guilty. 
This is the idea of how many people will say that they become a Christian and then try to go back into the sin that they used to do. And they don't feel comfortable, they don't feel comfortable doing the sin because God's convicting them. The ones that they want to sin with don't feel comfortable because they look at this person and say, well, you're just a goody two-shoes and have been for the last, you know, however long. Or when are you going to judge us because of this? Or, or even look at you as disdain. Well, you made your change and you came back. Isn't that really something that's worse if somebody chooses to do something and then they stop doing it and they have to explain why they stopped? Okay, you used to, not, you used to do these things, then you decided that your God was strong enough for you not to and you made a big deal out of it and now you want to come back and do it? You know, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Are you? Are you dizzy? Are you confused? Are you, you, know, you have no, no self-control? Whatever it might be they'll use on you. And this is what happens when we turn around and God puts us under the captivity of the world. And what we thought was going to be pleasant is no longer pleasant. Because God's saying, it's the world. And it's not going to hold up. And then he goes, verse 27, to show how swift, none of them shall be weary or stumble among them. None shall slumber or sleep. Neither shall they girdle their loins, be loosed, or that latchet of their shoes be broken. In other words, they're not going to rest. And have you ever been attacked and bombarded with so much going on in your life that you feel like, God, I would just like them to sleep for the problems, to sleep for, for an hour or two? God, I just can't handle this. And God's saying, that's exactly what I want. I want you not to be able to handle it so that you will turn away from the sin and turn back to me. And this is God's desire for us. Turn. Turn back to me. And sometimes he'll make our life total misery so that we will turn back to him. Job is that great example. Remember, what did we say about Job? Job believed in the prosperity gospel, that if you did good things, God rewarded you. And God's saying, Job, I want you to turn to me. I want your trust to be on me, not the things I give you, not the goods, not the stuff, but turn to me. And that's what God wants all of us to do, put our faith and trust in him completely. Not, not the gifts he gives us, not the things he gives us. And they can be physical things that he gives us to reward us. And it can even be spiritual gifts. God, I want, I want, you know, I want to speak in tongues. I want to pray for people and have them get healed. I want to be able to prophesy and give prophecy. I want to be able to do this, that, or the other thing that's spiritual gifts, God, because I, I just want what you want me to have, God. And God says, you're wanting to use them for yourself and not to glorify me, so you're not getting them. Well, if you do, they glorify themselves, and God says, no, that's not what it is, and he takes them away from him. How many times do we see people say, oh, I've got the gift of healing, I pray for people, and they get saved, uh, they get healed and get saved. Well, that may or may not be true, but if you're lifting yourself up, you don't have God's gift, because God says his gifts and calling are so that he gets lifted up. And this is what's important. Is he lifted up with what we do? When we witness, is he being lifted up or am I doing it just so I can say I witness to a lot of people? You know, when I'm giving a counsel, am I lifting him up or just saying, look at how good my counsel is? God is saying he is to be lifted up. And when he's lifted up, he will draw people to him. And our job is to lift him up and not ourselves. And believe me, it is very easy to get into this verse 21 mentality. Hey, look at me. Look how wonderful I am. I give good counsel. I, I, am, I am really smart. I can, I can give you everything that you need. And God's saying, no, don't go there. It brings nothing but problems. 
Verse 28 says, whose arrows are sharp and their bows are bent and their hooves, horses' hooves be, shall be counted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. So they're coming with, with battle array. And he's using weapons of their day. Bows and arrows, very strong weapon for long distance. And he says, their arrows are sharp and their bows are bent. They're ready to fire. Their horses, horses are charging so fast that there's sparks coming off their, off their, off their hooves. You know, that's what it means to have that flint. They're hitting the rocks and they're, they're causing sparks. Uh, and the wheels are like whirlwind. Their chariots are, are, are growing fast. Have we ever felt like that? God, there's so much attack on me that the enemy is strong. The enemy is strong. And that's what God wants us to understand. The enemy is strong. And the only way we can defeat the enemy is to turn to God. Hide in God. David in the Psalms says, God is our fortress. He's our strong tower. He's our buckler. He's our shield. Well, David used all kinds of military terms to say, get, get hiding in God. <laughs> Hide in God. He's our fortress, our buckler, our shield, our strong tower. Hide in him. You know, and people will say, well, you're just using God as a crutch. Yes, I am. Thank you, I am. I have no problem, I have no problem saying that God is my crutch. And I'm not going to stop. And I'm not going to stop letting him be my crutch, and I'm not going to get outside of him because I will get beat up if I'm outside him. Yeah. My question for people who say God is your crutch is, okay, fine, what's your crutch? And they'll go, well, I don't have one. I'm going, let's see, do you drink? Do you do drugs? Are you, are you, work, are you a workaholic? Are you into money? You know, uh, are you into friends? Are you into relationships? What, what is your crutch? Because everybody has one. Everybody has a crutch that they lean on. No matter how self-sufficient they think they are, they have a crutch. And if they think they're self-sufficient without a crutch, then their self-sufficiency is their crutch that's going to be knocked out from under them. Everybody has something that they lean on. The question is, what is it that you're leaning on? I would rather lean on God than anything else because there is nothing else out there that's going to protect me the way God does. And if somehow I stumble and fall while I'm in his protection, he will catch me. You know, that's the great beauty of it is God says, I'm holding you. And by the way, my arms are also underneath you. If, you. if somehow you manage to get out of my arms, which you're not going to, my arms are underneath you to catch you up there. You know, what a beauty it is for God to hold us. He is not going to let go. And even somehow, if we ma manage somehow to get out of his grip, he's just got another hand underneath us to grab hold of us there. And the beauty of it is so showing us his absolute security that we have. If we're his child, we're his child forever, and he is not going to let go, period. Now, if you're not his child, you have nothing, no, nothing to depend on. And this is going to be the, the very critical thing. Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things? Wasn't I, wasn't I in your hands? I thought I, I thought I was doing all these things for you, and I wasn't in your hands. And he's going to say, no, nope, never knew you. So it's important to make sure that we're known by Jesus. How do we know that? When you're in a relationship with Jesus, you know that you know that you know that you know that you're his. Uh, because it's just like anybody else. If you spend time, if you're married, you know that you're married. I don't know of anybody who's ever been married that doesn't know that they're married. And if they don't, there's a problem with that marriage. <laughs> okay, if you don't remember saying vows and getting that ring given to you, there's a problem. Okay, you're not married. And this is the type of relationship we have with Jesus. We know that I've put my life into his hands. I know that he is my friend. And you know, I've heard so many testimonies, and it's true of even myself, 
Did I know everything I was doing when I got saved? No. I said a prayer, and you know, I know something changed in my life. There was a heaviness that got taken out, a sin burden that got taken out, even at 10 years old. And we know that we know that we're changed. If nothing changes, you need to be able to look to God and say, God, did I, am I one of your children? But, you know, I hear this so often in people's testimony. I said a simple prayer. I didn't understand it, but something happened in my heart. I all of a sudden was changed. There was a burden that was lifted off me. And that's that sin, the burden of sin, the guilt of sin that gets lifted off of us and, and Christ rules. And it's so important that we see this going on and say, God, I know you. I know you. I've never had to worry about, am I saved? Yes, over the years, there's been a couple occasions, you know, I was young and didn't really understand the scriptures where I go, God, am I really saved? And God would remind me back to what I did and how it happened. And yes, you're saved. You're my child. And now I know the scriptures well enough to know I'm his. I'm his. Him and, he and I have quite a relationship. We know each other. We talk frequently, like several times every day. <laughs> you know, I get into his word and listen to him. Sometimes he's a little quieter than others. Sometimes he's very bold and in front. And it all depends on where I am with him. But I know him. And the challenge is, do we know him? Verse 20, 29, Their roaring shall be like a lion, and their roar like a young lion's. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of their prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver. This is the enemy. When God turns his people over, a roar. And a lion's roar is one of the loudest roar, uh, noises that is out there. I, I read on one of the zoos one time that you can hear a lion's roar five miles away. Wow. Okay, that's a long ways. And I believe it because when, when, I've been in, when, I've heard it, when I've heard it nearby, they have some pretty loud roars. And he says, the enemy will roar like a lion. And the lion's roar is mostly to scare people or scare items or, you know, they don't, if they're not looking to fight or kill because they're very stealthful when they want to kill. And it says they roar, they, they roar like the young lion's ear. They shall roar and lay hold of their prey and carry it away and none shall deliver. If God puts us in his hand, it does look like it would be carried away. And we've, most of us have probably been there at some time. When I backslid, it was like I was carried away. Stopped going to church, stopped reading my Bible, stopped even thinking about God, and was miserable for two years. And you know, I, could have, I would have said, I got carried away. I got carried away by the enemy. Not searching God, not seeking him. And then it says, in that day shall they roar against them like a roaring of the sea. And, and if one look into the land, behold darkness and sorrow, and light is darkened in the heavens thereof. The sadness of when things are all going wrong, especially for the world. They have no hope whatsoever. But even as Christians, when we're in the midst of this being carried away, we look out and all we see is that darkness. We're not seeing God. We're not seeing his deliverance. We see no hope because we're not trusting in God. We go all the way back to verse 24. We've, we've despised his law. We've cast away his, his, his teachings. And when we do that, we have trouble. We look at everything and everything looks bleak. Everything looks dark. And we go, God, I have no hope. And he's saying, well, it's easy to get hope. Repent. Turn back. You know, just quit looking at the darkness and turn back to me and see the light. And that's exactly what repent means, to turn around back to God. 
when we're looking the opposite way, it's like when the sun is rising or sun is setting, if you're looking the wrong way, you don't see the light until it finally overcompasses you. But you know, if you don't want to see the sunset and you're looking at the darkness, all you see is the growing darkness. And especially with sunset, a sunrise, we can do that. If we're looking to the west instead of the east, we're going, okay, God, where's that sun? <laughs> I'm not seeing any. I'm not seeing the deliverance. All I see is the darkness. Now, that's a bad example, of course, because the sun is going to get high enough to, to give you light. But, that, but you understand what I'm saying, that first part where we just have our back toward God and say, God, I'm not, I'm not looking to you. I'm not going to trust you. And we're, again, we're not always that blunt when we do this. We're, we're caught in a trap. And God's saying, turn around. The, the light, just turn around. The light's over here. You know, uh, the light's over here. Just turn around and you'll see the light. <laughs> and, and then we do. And, and it is an amazing when we do repent and we turn to God and we see the light and everything, you know, all of a sudden, everything just has a different appearance to it. And it's like, oh, all right, God, you, you are in control. You do know what you're doing. Uh, it's not as dark as it seems. And we turn to him. Turn the light switch on with repentance. <laughs> but, you know, that's what God is saying to us. Turn. Turn back to me. And the world just keeps running. Keeps running toward destruction. And, you know, we're told that narrow is the gate that leads to, to life. But you know, what comes after that narrow gate is a wide open freedom where we get to rest in God and live by grace. The wide way, it funnels down into a little narrow chute that leads to destruction. It's like the cattle roundups where they build real large gates and they just drive the cows to these gates and slowly the gates go down to a chute that leads them into a, a truck or a, or a box car or whatever they're using to ship them. You know, the wide way eventually ends up to a narrow path of destruction. The narrow path that we go through for Christ opens up into freedom. And, you know, and it's the same thing, the same thing when they get them off the trucks, they go through the chute into the, into the wide range. And this is, you know, we use that same kind of a picture for us. If you're, if you're choosing to not obey God, you start out on a very wide path, but it all heads to destruction. When we come through to Jesus, it starts at a narrow path and then he says, you've got liberty. You've got liberty to, to do whatever you want, but we're going to be held in our liberty by his love and his desire to serve him. Because we're free to do anything we want as a Christian. We're constrained by his love and his, and his being to say, God, I want to do what's going to help others. I can do whatever I want. I can, I can go drink. I can go gamble. I can go do a lot of things that God says that there's not a verse in there that says not to. But the reason I won't do most of those things, especially as a pastor, is I don't want to make others get hurt. So I say, God, I'm gonna, my liberty, my freedom is bound up in you. And I do it willingly and I do it cheerfully. You know, I don't think I'm missing anything by not going out drinking every, every weekend. Especially when I hear people in the horror stories about their drinking every weekend and every night. I'm not missing anything. I'm not missing anything by sleeping around and not honoring my marriage vows. I'm not missing anything by being a very truthful person. And, you know, it gets interesting even in right work sometimes where people go, well, you don't have to say this. I've got one particular teacher who doesn't want me to say certain things. I'm going, I cannot lie. She goes, well, it's not lying. I go, it's not telling the truth either. I go, uh... 
if they ask me, I'm going to tell them. Don't set yourself up for, you know, or me up to be looking bad because I'm going to tell them the truth. Okay? And why? Because I want to be a man of integrity. If I say something, I don't want people wondering, well, how true is his truth? Did he tell me just enough truth or did he tell me the truth? You know, what, what didn't he say? I don't want that to be the case. Now, it doesn't mean I tell them everything I know about every topic all the time, but if somebody asks me something, I'm going to tell them the truth. And this is very important. Are we walking the way God wants us to, or are we living the way the world lives? Well, you don't have to tell the whole truth. You know, you can, you can fabricate a little bit as long as you don't break the truth. You know, you can bend it 90 degrees as long as you don't break it. Uh, but that's not what God says. And, you know, so the point that we have is, are we hiding in God? Are we living his way? Or... Are we saying, God, uh, God, I don't know quite how close I can come to the sin without crossing over it. And we get a lot of people with that, you know, well, you know, the old definition when Clinton was off is, what is sex? <laughs> you know, uh, how close can I come? What can I do before I have crossed the line? Instead of saying, God, I want to stay as far away from this, this line as possible. I don't even want it to look like I've possibly crossed that line. And this is something we always have. And no matter what the sin might be, and I kind of just randomly pick some, you know, there's always this idea for, if we're not really saying, God, I want to be like you and obey you, there's this idea of how close can I come to this line without crossing it? Where can I go to? Where, at what point have I gone too far? And if you're inclined to say how close you can get, you're probably too close to the sin. <laughs> okay, you've probably actually crossed the line in justifying it. Okay, that will be two people living together and saying we're in a platonic relationship. It just looks like we're, 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 we're doing things. Okay, well, you're probably in a dangerous place. Okay, it's, you know, uh, and not saying it's right or wrong, but you're probably getting really close to the line, and we need to be careful. When people look at us, what do they say? Do they see the righteousness of God, or do they see us plain? playing at it and having to justify and if you're having to justify what you're doing to people you might want to look at it and say God if I cross if I push the line a little too far now they may just be judgmental as well we, and so we want to be careful but if we're having people go well uh, are you sure that your relationship is is pure at that point we need to be able to look and say God help me understand is it Am I too close to the line? Have I crossed the line? Because usually that would be an indication that we are either really, really close to the line or we have crossed the line completely. And that's not saying we're going to say, yes, everybody's right that judges us. But we also need to be willing, as Paul said, to give up something that we think is okay if it's going to make a brother sin, brother or sister sin, and say, God, I don't want to do it. If it's going to make somebody else fall into sin, God, I don't want to do it, even if I have no problem with it. And the thing about this is we can do anything that we have absolutely no conviction against. And I'll have people go, well, can I do such and such? I'm going, probably not, because if you're, if you're having to ask, you don't have absolute conviction that you can do it. So it's a very true statement. If you're asking me if you can do something, the answer is probably not. Even if I can't find a scripture that says don't, my answer will be, you obviously are having some kind of convictions and concerns about it, so you should not be doing it. If you can go out and drink every Friday night and not get drunk and you have no problems with it and you're not going to conviction for it, 
there's not a problem. But if you're asking me, can I do it, you're probably having convictions with it and needing to, and not being able to do it. If you can, you know, whatever it might be, you know, there, you know, you need to be able to do it without any questions in your mind about it. Because if you're questioning it, then you're something in the back of your mind from God most likely saying, you're crossing the line or you're getting too close to the line, don't do it. Or it'll harm somebody, don't do it. And this is why, you know, a lot of people go, well, you Christians don't, don't allow anything. Well, you're allowed to do just about anything other than handful of thou shalt nots. Okay, handful of thou shalt nots we can't do. There's a whole bunch of things that God can say, I don't want you doing this because it's not a good witness. And when we get those, then we need to stop doing it. And those will be for us personally. There's many things that God told me I can't do that are not a thou shalt not that I'm not going to tell people because I don't want them to think they have to be like me and try to be like me when God hasn't convicted them of something. And I don't want to try to be like anybody else. If I have freedom where you don't, then praise God and let me know and I'll probably stop because I don't want to offend the person. But, you know, I don't want to be like anybody else and I don't want them to be like me. I want to be what God wants me to be. And if God convicts you, stop doing it. If he's put a question in your mind, stop doing it. If you can do it without a question in your mind, praise God, have liberty, and don't flaunt it in front of others who have trouble with it. But we want to, there's woes to these people who choose to disobey God. And we all know it. If we disobey God, he's going he's to spank us. He's going to take us behind the woodshed and, and, and discipline us. And it happens every time when we're his child. It even happens to those who aren't his children. They just don't recognize it as his discipline. They just look at it as a whole series of bad luck and, and bad, bad things going on in their life. We, at least as Christians, go, okay, God, I, I've got the picture. So he does discipline the non-Christians. He does. Why, why else would they end up committing suicide because of their loneliness, committing suicide because they're not fulfilled? It's not so much discipline as much as emptiness. They're, he's going to intensify their emptiness, which is partially that discipline. None of this stuff is going to please you. Just as us for Christians, none of sin is going to please us. And with the spirit in us, it makes it real easy for us to be unpleased. With a lost world, it's just kind of an ache. They don't really understand it. They just know they're not fulfilled. I'm just empty. I don't know why I'm empty. And they keep going further and further into their sin, and God makes them emptier and emptier, which is a discipline. If they were a Christian, they would recognize it as, oh, I need to get back to God. But for the lost world, they don't recognize it. And he's not going to punish them near as much as he does his children. It's just the empty ache that's going to be for the, for the lost world. The sin that keeps getting worse and worse. And this is a problem with sin, period. It never stays where it starts. Okay? The person who's getting into sin, if you drink and, got, and you're convinced, convinced it's a sin, you're not going to stop, you know, it's not going to stay at the one drink that you're able to drink for a long period of time. It's going to keep getting more and more. When you get into drugs, it's not, going to, it's not going to stay at the one joint or the one pill. It's going to keep getting bigger and bigger because the emptiness and the lack of fulfillment. When people get into sexual sins, it doesn't stop with just the simple sin. It gets more and more deviant in its behavior because they're looking for a thrill that cannot be encountered because sin never fulfills in the long run. It will fulfill in the short run. We all know that. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin. If there wasn't some pleasure in the sin, none of us would ever sin. Okay? And that's just the way it is. And we all know it. When we really look at it, we know 
okay, yeah, it was okay the first time or the second time, and I really enjoyed it. But as you get caught up in it, that enjoyment disappears. And you know, and if you've been following God long enough, sometimes there's not even the joy, enjoyment that you think you're going to get when you go back into a sin. You know, uh, alcoholics and, and drug users have found this kind of thing out. You know, they follow God, they've had their life change, and then they go back into it and say, man, I don't even have, I don't, I don't have the joy I thought I remembered. This it's not any fun. I didn't get any pleasure out of this. And this is the way it is with... And this is why it's so wonderful to be in God and find true pleasure and peace when you just bend your will to his. I love being able to follow God. I love being able to be obedient to him and just the pure enjoyment <coughs> of being his child and following him. And, you know, as I've said, you know, I, I love to ask people when, they, when I'm talking to them about witnessing and they go, well, you know, when I die, I'm dead. And I'm going, what if you're wrong? Okay, then they'll they'll inevitably they'll inevitably ask you know because they understand where you're going and they go well, what if you're wrong, and I love it and go you know what I've lived a very good life I've had a very peaceful life if if God has lied to me and this is all there is I've had a very good life but the fact that I've had a good life tells me that He hasn't lied to me, for the future, and but if He if for some reason there is no God I do not feel like I've lost anything. I am, as a matter of fact, I know that I have not lost anything, especially as I listen to people talk about their sinful lifestyle, and I go, I know I haven't, haven't lost out on anything. So if, if, if by any chance there is no God, and I know there isn't because of his life that he's given me today, I have not lost out. I've lived a very good life. And the very fact that I've lived such a good life tells me that he is true, and that there is going to be an afterlife, and that he's going to be in charge of that afterlife and give me all the blessings that he has told us to. Because why would he give them to me here if he's not going to give them to me there? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help us as Christians to see sin the way you see as it being awful. Help us to get it out of our lives. Lord, if there's anybody listening that doesn't know you, Lord, we ask that today they will recognize that their sin is awful in your sight and will lead to hell, and that they will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior because he died for them and that they will contact a Christian and, and seek how to grow from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.